0: This morning, I get to talk about that which is near and dear to my heart, discipleship. It's all over the New Testament. It's not too uh, practiced this day uh, as it used to be. But in the scriptures, I want to open your eyes to a little bit of what is said about it. I'd have to say coming to Christ at, at 19 and having people that uh, kind of moved me in that direction of being more trained and taught helped me immensely. So from the age of about 19 on, I've just uh, had sort of this love affair with discipleship. There's nothing that I enjoy more than to actually see someone come to Christ and then grow, not just know, grow in Jesus Christ. I love to be a part of that. I actually am doing something that I never expected at this ripe old age. I have seven grandsons, Ann and I do, and one granddaughter. And two of these grandsons that are sophomores in high school, I'm working in discipleship with them. And you talk about fun and trying my best to get on their level with biblical truth. It's a great challenge and a great joy and satisfaction. So I'm uh, I'm immensely emerged in this, and, and I just absolutely love the whole process. So what I want to do this morning is give you a bit of an introduction biblically to it, a foundation if you will, I want to lay some concrete so that we can really build some superstructure on it. This whole idea of discipleship should never be left to mere discipline and diligence, because at the heart of discipleship is a relationship. It's a relationship that caused me to be redeemed, in other words, bought at a very high price, the blood of the Lamb of God. And that relationship is something that I want to pursue. I think oftentimes of discipleship as I do a marriage. The more I invest in my marriage with Ann, the more intimacy develops, the more time you invest in growing and knowing your savior, the more intimacy evolves and develops. And we're made for that. We're not made to be separate from our maker. We're made to be in that closeness, that nearness, that kind of intimate relationship with him. John said, 3 John verse 4, he said it in the late 90s, when he was about 90, I have no greater joy than this, than to see my children walking in the truth third john verse four and that is what i want to put before you the absolute joy and satisfaction of seeing people in christ grow and become more like their savior there's nothing to compare to it but again i want to lay that foundation Uh, the apostle paul said something that really leans in this direction about relationship It's going to appear up here for you. It's in Philippians chapter 3, and it's in verses 8 and 10 of that autobiographical section in Philippians. He says uh, in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost, all things, in view of the surpassing value of knowing, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then in verse 10, he says to know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. He says, let me just stress something in all of this stuff. I was a scholar trained by Gamaliel. I understand all these things, but the goal of all this instruction is love from a pure heart and a blameless conscience and a sincere faith. It's a relationship that has love written all over it and under it, beside it, and over it. It's that love relationship and a discipleship relationship people sometimes we get away from that. And we make it just the discipline and duty and diligence. But that can be pretty drab. We're talking about intimacy with Jesus Christ when we're talking about discipleship. Uh, today, I, uh, I don't hear much about discipleship, honestly. I, I hear of something else. And I think you will know as soon as I say this word that it's kind of borders on discipleship, but not actually. Is it discipleship? And that word is mentoring. I don't see it in scripture. I I see discipleship all over the place. Mentoring is good and it's extremely beneficial. If there's a particular need that I have, and I remember especially being a younger person, then I would uh, try to find someone that I thought would have a modicum of wisdom and I would get with them. It requires their availability and my initiative. And so I would get with them and I would try to get a little direction. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. Uh, Spiritual coaching, direction, fine stuff. But discipleship is more proactive. Discipleship has more to do with training and teaching and being consistent and getting together on a regular basis, not just when an issue arises. So discipleship is what we're talking about, not mentoring as much. Discipleship is what Jesus Christ commanded his disciples to do. Before he ascended in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he said, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, and baptizing them and and." T- and teaching them all that I've taught you, and, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The command there is not to go. That's actually a participle in the Greek language. The commandment is singular. It is make disciples. It's what Jesus told his disciples to do, make disciples who make disciples. And Paul picked the whole thing up when he said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Uh, the things that you've heard from me, Timothy, as a pastor in Ephesus, these entrust in in the presence of many witnesses, not just one-on-one necessarily, but in a small group Bible study or anything like that consistently meets. These entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. There's a four-step process in that. From Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, and you determine and define a faithful man by the fact of whether or not they pass it on to others who will teach. So that's what we're told to do. I remember being in a class one time with a, a Dallas Theological Seminary. I took an advanced class on discipleship. I was, again, it's I'm, you know I've loved, loved it for so long. And Dr. Hendricks looked at us after we read the Great Commission, oftentimes referred to as the Great O Mission today, but the Great Commission. And I remember him saying, "This is a command, guys." He had 12 of us in the group. By the way, we never figured out who Judas was in the group. But anyway, there were 12 of us in the group. And uh, I'll never forget him saying, if you're not making disciples, you're not doing the will of God. So all my life, all my ministry, uh, Ann and I have really worked at making disciples who will make more disciples. She's meeting with women this last week, and I'm meeting with three groups in the fall, besides doing work with the Fords at Pine Cove. And uh, then uh, some other guys on an individual basis too. And I have no greater joy, said John and Bob, than to hear and to see people grow in the truth. Preaching is great, folks, and people need that. But there's something really tangible that I want you to get to feel. When you actually are a part of someone's life, you give them truth, it explodes. There's sparks all over the place, and you see this glow that they get it, and they're going to grow and get along with it. There's nothing to compare to it. Discipleship. That's what we're told to do. Now, what I'm going to do is kind of mess with you a little bit. Because when I was a brand-new Christian, I didn't really get it. I thought that a, a, a disciple was someone who was uh, really sold out completely. He, uh, he, he, he would, he would uh, stop at nothing, sacrifice anything to be a disciple. He would really just uh, be, as we would call it, gung-ho, all in. I thought that was a disciple. So when I was a young guy in the scriptures, I, I thought, uh, wow, you know, I hit this passage in, in John chapter 6, and it really confused me. Because what I, see, what I saw in that passage for the first time was that these guys who were part of the crowd were called disciples, and when Christ got, some, got to some really difficult stuff, trying to be very specific about how to become a Christian and what you must do, these guys said, oh, that's enough, no more, can't stomach this, and off they, they did go. They withdrew, and we're going to get to that. But I said, wait, these things are in conflict. How does a disciple hear truth that is about salvation and say, no, I don't want any part of that? So I was confused, and I want you to have some clarity, which I did not have in the early days on this. Okay? So we're going to talk about uh, discipleship and lay that foundation, and we're even going to talk about stages of discipleship. And then if you'd like to, if your appetite is whetted enough, Come on back next week because what we're going to talk about is really that third stage more fully what it means. And we'll get to these stages in a minute. It all begins in John chapter 6. You want to jump in there? If you have a smartphone, just kind of hit the right uh, tabs and and apps and let's go. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, you have got the, uh, the most extensive of all gospel presentations in the four gospels. You have it beginning in the first 14 verses in John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. And there was a time that I preached this here. It's a fascinating miracle. And uh, the the miracle involves so many more people than just the 5,000. Because in the Greek, it's actual men who are referred to. Now, you know as well as I. That when you start doing some preaching, women are a little bit more numerous than men in the early stages. Kind of like the buck send out the does to check it out a little bit, you know. And so the women are a little bit more numerous. So if you have 5,000 men, let's go with at least seven to 10,000 women. And then women can't go anywhere in those days without church babysitting and child care. So they brought their kids with them. So I'm going like, I mean, you got a minimum of 20,000 people. What you have in this tremendous miracle that's only in, the only miracle in all four gospels, you have Christ saying, give me that Happy Meal. Give me the two sardines, salted sardines. Give me the five barley loaves, the circular, cheap, coarse brown barley. Give me those things and watch what I can do with them. It's one of the most fantastic miracles. I wish that I could see something like that. Just to watch Christ produce and reproduce all of this food for thousands of people. I can't come away from something like that without saying, what can he do with my life? What you have is enough when placed in the hands of Christ. That's our Savior. So it starts with that, and we're talking about bread. The bread of life discourse follows. And you see these sections within this long discourse from like verses 26 all the way to 71. And I want to give you not this sermon, but I want to show you how Jesus moves through bread and belief, And then a response, and see that response to let you understand what a disciple was in the early stages, and then show you the advanced stages so that you can really get a firm foundation in this whole thing. And may I suggest this this is not just for the frontal lobe, it's for where you are. I want you to evaluate really where you are as an individual not where your wife or husband or child is but where are you I want this to be personal I want you to think through what is God saying to me what stage am I at so just to bring in to start with all this I want to work with John chapter 6 and this sermon called the bread of life teaching or bread of life discourse if you were to look at this you would see in verses 26 through 40 that the key word is bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. I am your eternal source and sustenance and satisfier, not just of the physical organs, but of your spiritual life. I do something that is so much better than Mountain Dew for quenching your thirst. Man, I'm going to come in and I'm going to quench that thirst for eternity of your purpose and position in life. And so bread is the key word Verse 35 is the key verse of that section. These aren't words necessarily for a church. People who know Christ. These are words for people who don't know the Savior, who are the unchurched folk. All right? This word occurs like 10 times in those nine verses. Bread is significant. The second section is verses 41 to 59. In that section, the key word is believe. Believe. You've heard this word so often said. It uh, it's found uh, so many times, like eight times in nine verses. Actually, it's a really offer of salvation, and the key verse is what we have here. To believe in... No, excuse me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So if you want to have eternal life, you've got to understand what believe means. We're going to be talking about that. But to to make it extremely clear to his audience in Capernaum as he was speaking at a synagogue even on that Saturday, Jesus Christ spells this out extremely clear with the word eat in verses 50... 58 over and over again he uses the word eat as a synonym as a description to define what he means by believe well that makes sense because so often we leave belief in sort of an historical setting sort of like that's fact i see it i think it's true it's a fact but yet it doesn't affect our lives in any way that's not believe. That's not the definition. And so what Jesus does is say, take the word eat, for example. That's what I want you to understand. You've got to be active, aggressive. You've got to take the initiative. You've got to reach out. And, and if, I, if, I, if I put before you this 12-ounce this medium rare ribeye, and it was 1 o'clock this afternoon, I went way over. Don't worry, I'm not, that's not going to happen. But if I did, and you were starving, and I put this ribeye before you, and I said, "Believe that this is a great ribeye," you just wouldn't sit there and say, "Oh, I see that. I see it." No, you would take it and you would eat it. And the point that Jesus is making is to believe in Christ involves far more than just inspection. It involves ingestion. So when Jesus Christ began to use that word eat and and uh, i i want you to eat my body i I want you to drink my blood well these jews who were disciples we will see not christians but disciples were repelled it was repugnant to them and they said we're not going to have any part of this close your ears turn your body let's walk away and they withdrew what we're trying to say is this A disciple in that day was not a Christian. That's the point. A disciple starts a long time ago in 250 B.C. with classical Greek. The Greek word mathetes. And so we want to look at it in just a moment. But I want you to see the response of these people when Jesus Jesus said, take and eat me. I want you you to ingest me. Don't just stand apart, go to church, uh, share in communion because it's a religious activity or drop some money in an offering plate. That's not what I want you to do. I want you to have me. And so he was very graphic. And when he was, these Jews were having their minds spin through the verses that they had memorized. And all of a sudden one comes up with Leviticus 17 verse 11. Wait a minute. In the law, the Torah, Jesus, we weren't supposed to drink any blood because it says that life is in the blood. So you take all blood away from any sacrifice before you offer it and partake of its meat. Remove it completely. You're telling us, to forget it, Christ. We'll have nothing to do with it. And they were called disciples. So what you have here is what I want you to see. In verse 60, how did the people respond? How did they actually react? Many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it in verse 60? And he also says in verse 61, but Jesus conscious said his disciples grumbled, and I guess you could say, and stumbled, said to them, does this cause you to do that? And then further in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Get that now? Disciple did not mean to believe necessarily. At this point And then in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And uh, what would you say about his own selected 12? That's in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, "You do not want to go away also, do you?" And the response of Peter at that point was an incredible encouragement to me as a young Christian in college. Peter said, to whom should we turn? Only you have words of eternal life. And I clung to that. Only you have words of eternal life. All right, so you can see, what I want you to see is that these fellows were called disciples, but actually they weren't Christians. So how do you rectify those things? Let's do that. Let's start with the meaning of the word, Disciple, and then let's go to the three stages that bring that that bring in the uh, the meaning a little bit for us from John chapter six, and then we'll kind of ask you some some pertinent and penetrating questions. First of all, what did it mean, to disciple? The Greek word is actually mathetes, and mathetes is used over and over again, but it began by just uh, hitching its wagon to the old classical Greek in 250 with Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. They all had their disciples. Moses had his disciples. John the Baptist had his disciples. We're not talking about Christians. We're just talking about, and here's the definition, one who follows One who listens and learns. A relationship that's very similar to a teacher with his pupil. That's what mathetes meant in that day. So when you look at it in its early stage, and here would be the first stage, the stage would incorporate and include people who were merely curious. Curious. Not Christian, but simply curious. So they wanted to, well, I, I... That's fascinating what you just said. I want to hear more of it so they would follow and learn as they listen. Okay, so let's talk now about the stages of discipleship and lay this foundation to prepare us for even more of next week. All right. And also answer the question, where are we today? So there you have methetes and its meaning. The first stage that you want to see is Curious. And that's in First John verses 35 to 51. These guys were incredibly interested. They had been taught from the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to come for his first advent, and is indeed this person the Messiah. John the Baptist was the forerunner, the path preparer, the James Fenimore Cooper of the first century for Christianity. And so in John chapter 1, verse 35, again the next day, John, John the baptizer, you got to be careful, he wasn't the first Baptist, you guys. He was a baptizer, okay? So anyway, he, uh, the, he was standing there with two of his disciples, not Christians now, disciples. And he he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold the Lamb of God. That's the Pascal Lamb, the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. The one who would lay down his life for Bob's sin and guilt and actually take my sin upon himself and die in my place. Once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring me Into right relationship with God. John the Baptist, the baptizer, saw all of this and proclaimed it out loud. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Why? They were curious, they were interested as to what he was going to say, they were intrigued enough to follow and and learn. Jesus turned in verse 38 and said, "What, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, remember teacher, pupil, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, you who I'm putting in here are curious and see and learn. And so they did that. And then the news spread, John, and then Andrew, and then Simon Simon Peter, Andrew's brother. It says he found his brother and said, hey, this is incredible. I think we found the Messiah curiosity let's get it satisfied and so they, uh, the, the group continued to expand and it moved on to Philip and then Nathaniel in verse 45. So all of these guys are coming together and they' they're following in that curious stage of that original 12 group they're not Christians yet but they're curious and they want to be they want to seek and know for certain now the second stage of discipleship, is convinced convinced this is actually where you become a christian this is where you actually believe in the lord jesus christ and you shall be saved act 16 31 philippian jailer paul's first roman imprisonment so this is where you actually put your trust in christ and in john chapter 2 verse 11 you see that jesus was doing miracles in fact, if you want to learn the Gospel of John very quickly, in the first 12 chapters, you have seven key miracles. Those miracles are not called what normal Greek word would be used. Uh, it, it, uh, it was a semion that was actually used. And the word semion means sign. John's the only one who uses that word for miracle. And he uses it specifically to kind of blink the lights at, behold this miracle, then believe in the one who did it. He's got the most evangelistic of all Gospels, especially in those first 12 chapters. And then having believed in him, convinced, then you move on to greater commitment. And that's 13 through 21 of John. But initially in chapter 2, there's this first miracle. And what did he do in Cana of Galilee? Remember, if any of you like wine, you will love the story. They ran out of wine at this wedding. And the mother of Jesus said, what do we do? Maybe you saw The Chosen, and it's a moving episode. I absolutely loved it. And so Jesus said, fill these water pots, 20 to 30 gallons. And you know what he produces? By a spoken word better wine than you can find in Sonoma and Napa combined. And they taste it and they go, ooh, ooh, we don't have the denarii to pay for this stuff. And by the way, what do you, I thought you you have the poorer stuff when people, you know, have drunk a little bit and they are experiencing a little joy. (laughs) He brings out the best stuff that we can't even afford now the disciples saw this they saw the water turned to wine wouldn't that have been great just like the feeding of the 5000 wouldn't it have been great to have seen that and to taste that only he can create people can kill but not create he created wow that incredible wine what's the result of this look at verse 11 verse 11 the result is this beginning of his signs sameon not dudamus This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And look, and his disciples believed in him. So they became convinced they became Christians. That's the point. And that's what Jesus wants us to do, to move from being curious where many of us may be, having gone to church for many years as I did. All those years I went to church, mother being a Lutheran, dad being sort of a casual convenient Baptist who was really concerned most about prosperity and doing well and he did. It was great. It's just that what was really important didn't catch first priority. And so anyway, these guys believed in Christ and things changed for them. Now how does that happen? How does belief actually occur? I thought we'd throw this in uh, Chris, who's actually teaching a Sunday school class in this hour, actually shared a couple of these things in the last couple of weeks. But I want to just uh, turn to Matthew 16 for a moment, because what I want you to see is that God may be well working in your life right now, because for someone to come to Christ, God has got to be drawing you. In John 6:44, no one comes to the Son unless he is drawn by the Father. So it's a convicting work of the Father and the Spirit of God. And uh, it says that in uh, Matthew 16, this is a classic passage. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the of man is? And they said, well, some say John the baptizer, others Elijah, great prophet. Still others, Jeremiah, another great prophet. Or one, you know, one of those guys. He said to them, but who do you say? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Peter, because b- flesh and blood did not open your eyes and the mind of your heart did not reveal this to you. But my father in heaven did that. That's how conversion actually occurs, folks. And then he says, I also say to you that, You are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Some people like to wonder, well, does that mean that Peter the apostle is the foundation of the church? Just by way of note on the side, Peter is Petros, it's masculine. The rock that he talks about four words later is Petra in the neuter form. So that's referring to the confession that upon this rock, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I will build my church. He's the cornerstone. Peter is not. So Peter is masculine, and he says, Peter, I'm not going to build it on you. You're one of the apostles. I'm going to build it on the confession that you just gave. That's what's really going to be that cornerstone. Okay? Now, do you see this though, in conclusion? To be, to believe, to become a Christian in John chapter 3, To be born again, that's what we're calling conversion. Conversion comes through spiritual revelation with the Father revealing it and by supernatural regeneration. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that He made us new on the inside. The outer man is the King, but don't look at me like that. But the inner man is really something and it's being renewed day by day and it's eternal. So that's how we become a Christian. So there's a curious stage and there is secondly, the convinced stage. The curious stage, Maybe may be early discipleship, but you're not a Christian. You're just following and learning. But the convinced stage means that you have believed in Jesus Christ, and now you're a Christian. All right? Now, I want to say just a word about the third stage, and then I'm going to jump back, retrogress a bit, because I want you to see where you are this morning. The third stage, if you want to jot this down, is the committed stage. The committed stage has verses that are plentiful in the New Testament, like Luke 9.23. And he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We've heard these verses. He characterizes uh, disciples, not just Christians, but disciples. As Jesus takes that word, it's nuance and transforms it into something of a rare devotion and dedication and commitment. And he says, you will know if you're my disciples if you have love for one another a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you're my disciples John 15:8 if you bear much fruit you thus prove to be my disciples John 8:31 if you abide in my word you thus prove to be my disciple so it it, it involves fruitfulness it involves Uh, loving the Word of God. Now hear me, people, that committed stage is different than just showing up at church. There are so many people, if it's convenient, that will go to church. And they will sit under the Word of God as we're doing today. But they won't walk across the living room to get into the Word of God and to abide in it, John 8.31. They're not disciples. They're just convenient convinced Christians, but not really in that committed stage. My suggestion for all of us is that we move from curious to convinced, but from convinced to committed. Because that's where, as I started off, the intimacy is. That's where the nearness is in my marriage, when I really want to get, that I may know Anne, and just fully know her. And, and just that intimacy just just develops at that point. And if I work at it, it does take work. There's discipline, there's passion, and there's a plan. They, they've got to come together. And then you're really a committed disciple. Next week, sure hope you come back. Because we're going to really talk about commitment from a passage in Luke. I think it's fascinating. There's a lot of misunderstanding and spongy thinking about this passage in Luke. You'd love for me to give it to you, wouldn't you? Next week, I sure will. But right now, where are you? Our time's up, folks. And you're getting hungry. So, where are you? It's not about me. It's about your relationship with the Father. Where are you? Are you just in a curious position? Like, well, I you know, I go, well, I was curious, but really I just kind of showed up at church. I just did the things because it was what I should do. I knew the right stuff, but... I really had not come to Christ. It wasn't until I was 19 that I really put my trust in Christ and things changed. I'd never been so loved with unconditional love as then. And so, where are you? Are you at a curious stage? Then you need to do something. You need to become convinced. How do you do that? By believing. That word is used 96 times in the book of John alone that you might move from curious to convinced, become a Christian. What does it mean to believe? It's really simple. If you were to look in a Greek lexicon, that word pistou, you'd discover that there are three actual, three characteristics or three stages or three components of the word. The first is the right facts, the data. You got to know that Jesus, the God-man, undiminished deity, perfect humanity, He died in our place for our sin. He redeemed us, meaning he bought us with his own blood and body. He laid down his life at Calvary for you and me. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You got to know that. Okay? Got to know the facts that he died, and then on the third day he was resurrected to prove the very fact that he could forgive. Good facts. It doesn't make you a Christian to know those. You got to agree with them uh, as well as understand them. That's a mental assent, but that doesn't make you a Christian. A lot of people believe in historical figures and that's good. They have the right data. They understand, they agree. That doesn't make them Christians. To become a Christian, there's a third component. And that component is something that's lacking in so many of our lives. And that is the word trust with the word trust you have the concluding capstone of faith, belief. Belief and faith are the same word. And so, in the Greek. So what, what you wanna do is hear this illustration, okay? Would you tell me if this illustration makes sense? Have you ever heard of the Titanic? You have, way before I was born, and way some like 1912, on April the 15th, in the early hours. This indestructible, huge ship was sailing in the North Atlantic. It hit an iceberg and began to take on water. And this ship was never supposed to sink, but it was sinking. Now imagine that we're on that ship. And all of a sudden the captain with a big megaphone says, now these around you are called lifeboats. And these lifeboats are... Are constructed and are present here to save you from drowning from the frigid waters in the frigid waters of that North Atlantic. And so what you do is say, okay, okay. Uh, I I get it. And this is how many people will fit in that boat, you know? And so, you know, the facts I can be saved by by that lifeboat. Uh, That's its purpose. And you're standing there. You agree with it. You're ready on everything, but what must you do in order to be saved? Just say, I like that lifeboat. Is that enough? I believe in that lifeboat. Is that enough? No. The third component is that you get in the boat. That's the only way you're going to get saved. So many people go to church. So many people give. So many people do so much. But until they actually get in the boat and say, I'm putting all my trust in Christ who died in my place, they're not yet Christians. So I invite you this morning as we close, If you'd like to become a Christian, follow what I say. You can say it out loud. You can say it silently. But I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you want to move from the curious stage to the convinced stage and actually become a Christian, say what I say. Let's bow our heads and our hearts. Lord Jesus, I know that you are the Savior but now I want to make you my Savior. I now put my complete trust for forgiveness and entrance into heaven in you and what you have done at the cross. It's not in my ability, it's totally in what you have done. I trust in you to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've done that, we sure want you to talk to us and to tell us about that most significant decision—that's the most most important decision of your entire life—it affects all of eternity, with God separated for eternity from God. So I hope you made that decision, and I hope you'll come back next week, and we'll talk all about moving from convinced to committed. Take it, Paul.
1: Thanks, Dr. Tom. the gospel this morning. And of course, now we're going to move into the time of invitation. We don't do this just out of rote response because it's the way you're supposed to end services. Uh, We do this because we believe that the word, when it goes out, doesn't return void. And so if it is that this is the first time that you've heard this good news and you've put your faith in us, we'd love to celebrate that with you. If you have heard it and you're still having questions, you're still kind of curious, we'd love to continue that conversation with you during this time as well. Uh, Or maybe it is you have accepted that faith, and now you're already beginning to look forward towards next week, and now you're beginning to ask yourself, Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to be revealed to me about my commitment in this next stage? Um, or maybe simply it is that you've, you've been visiting for a while, that you've met with Lance or the Welcome Home team, uh, and that you want to uh, join alongside a dysfunctional family to figure out uh, what this commitment uh, looks like doing it life together. And if you want to uh, make your membership known at this time, if you've completed those processes, now's the time to do so. But whatever it is, and however you need to respond, this is the time to do it. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing. You can take whatever posture you need. Uh, you can continue to sit. You can gather at the right if you want to gather some of your prayer, you can come forward and pray, whatever it is, however you need to respond, now it's time to do so.